What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Finding Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Quackenbush. On this week's episode, we have Dr. Amy Crawford. She is an expert in the field of trauma, PTSD, addiction, and mental health. She teaches us skills and tools to manage anxiety, depression, how to deal with our own trauma symptoms, and she uses EMDR. If you're not familiar with that, after this podcast, you should be. It's a good one. It really is, and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And without further ado, here it is, episode two of the Finding Strength podcast. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back. It's the Finding Strength podcast, episode number two with Dr. Amy Crawford. How you guys doing? We're so glad to be here today. Stoked on this episode of Finding Strength. Yes, this is probably one of my favorites that we have talked about so far because oh, yeah. this is huge for me. Yeah. How have you been since the last podcast? Anything changed in your life? It's been a whole week, Bethany. I know. That was really good and bad all at the same time because... You rocked it. Oh, but no one likes to like put themselves out there. It's not my favorite thing to do. Um, lots of good feedback. I felt like so many people were really sweet and reached out and said awesome things. Did you want to punch anyone in the face? There was a couple. Okay. But <laughs> that's kind of my thing I say. Can no, you tell? You and I both, so we're in, you're in good company. That voice you hear, ladies and gentlemen, is the voice of the illustrious and fantastic... Glorious. Doc, glorious. Amy Dr. Crawford. Amy Crawford. Oh, yes, yes, it's true. It's true. She's here. So She's I will say, my negative stuff... That happened not a lot, but just a few things that, like, you know, wanted to punch a little little bit in the face. Not bad. Not like a punch black eye. I have to say, I dealt with better than I thought, and I, I want to give credit to Amy, because Amy has been my therapist for a while, and has basically saved me. I mean, she's taught me so many things on just... Self love and deal how to deal with different scenarios and how to like be me and speak my mind instead of just sitting back and letting things happen to really put myself out there. Well, thank you, and thanks for having the courage to do that work, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, Amy's like, well. Also, she's so. Are you comfortable with us giving you all these compliments? I'm not. I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm turning red. Ugh. Well, if only you could see her now, friends. Um, <laughs> I love it. Amy's Amy's my boss too. That's the other thing. So we're both in this vulnerable space here, where I get to sit next to my supervisor person. And big sister. And big sister. Amy and I have not grown, really your big sister. It's like the chosen relationship mm-hmm. family thing. It's Amy's, Amy and I have a really cool relationship and she's taught me a ton about how to become more authentic as a therapist, skills, tools. She has tons of experience. Uh, I kind of posted a little bit about her experience, but basically background, 16 years as a licensed marriage and family therapist. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a clinical psychologist. That's why she is the doctor. Um, she is certified in CPT and DBT. If you don't know what those are, maybe we'll dive into a little bit of the modalities that you specialize in. Those are like brands, if you will, of treatment and the different techniques that she uses in her therapy. Um, other 
things that she's really good at that she's taught me that I love is I'm just, funny. That's probably the most hilarious. important thing. Not okay. as funny Go as ahead. I am, Very but she is funny. True. Yeah. She does Very psychodrama, true. which I think we should touch on a little bit here because you're quite the expert at it and it is one of my favorite things that we get to do in in therapy and it's something that I think people don't really know about and as they learn about we'll be more open to because kind of one of the goals that I have for this podcast coming into it right and we and just so you guys know we kind of come in with a little bit of an agenda we like but we like it to be organic that's kind of the purpose but the little bit of agenda that I have today is I want to start a conversation about destigmatizing therapy because there's this big thing about going to therapy. I, I don't know if you run into it, but it, it's it's a huge hurdle that people has to have to get over in order to be able to fix their stuff. And the stigma of being vulnerable enough to go to a therapist to talk about your problems seems really daunting and really scary. But in reality, when people come in, they leave the office every single time. Well, most every single time. <laughs> I was say it depends. Depends. They leave the office... <laughs> And they're, I mean, it's like a, a drastic change and all of their fear. I couldn't tell you how many times, I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, Amy, but I couldn't tell you how many times people say, why was I so scared? I think a lot of times too, it's, at least for me growing up, it's kind of, there's kind of a change in our culture mm-hmm. where when we were younger, therapy was sit on a couch, lay there. You talk and someone just has a notepad and just writes down things while you talk the whole time. And I found that that is very far from the reality for me. I had one therapist before that was, um, we went to a couple therapy, me and my husband, after Bridie died to try to figure out together. And it was a very different experience, was not good, was literally, we talk and you just sit and listen and never give us any much advice or much many tools. So it was a completely different story when I went and saw Amy and I felt like it felt like I was having a conversation with a friend and we could talk and she gave input and then she would give me some tools along throughout the conversation instead of I'm talking and you sit. Is that, is that typical Amy? Like, do you feel like that's how therapy works for you? When you're Definitely that. for me, I try to show up as authentically as I can. Um, I joke I'm kind of a friendopist <laughs> to my to my <laughs> clients, where I show up pretty authentically. They know what they're going to get with me. I'm kind of no different than my clients. It's just a flip of the coin, which side of the couch I'm sitting on, I suppose. So for me, I feel like it's a disservice if I'm not an active participant in someone's work, because obviously they're coming, they're spending time and money to try to place themselves back on their journey and you know, essentially enter their wholehearted life. And so for me, just to sit there passively and go, hmm, tell me, how does that make you feel? Oh, really? Hmm. Doesn't feel like a service. (laughs) And it also doesn't feel authentic to who I am. I'm super opinionated. I'm strong-willed. I'm very passionate. I've got a lot of energy. And so that just kind of translates for me when I'm in the therapy space. So I like to be a really active, an active participant in their process. And so, again, I don't know that all clients like that. I think some clients just want to come and truly just sit and talk and talk and talk and talk. And for them, that might be really powerful. But I think a big part of the process, both for me as a clinician and for my clients, is to be as involved as I possibly can, showing up honestly with what's going on for me with their experience, as well as holding the space for them based on what's going on for them while adding therapeutic benefit by giving them tools and challenging them and calling them out on their stuff when they need to be called out and doing so compassionately. 
So. Yeah. But honest, being honest. Totally. Because I felt like you were really good at saying, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Or why is this happening? Instead of just, oh, good job. Yay. Yeah. I'm kind of direct, I'd say. I'm mm-hmm. a little more direct than just complimenting everything because I feel like your guys' life is upon the, you know, upon the line and I owe it to you. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do everything I can to show up and hold your hand on the journey and call you out along the way. So... Why did you become a therapist? Like, what was the journey that began Amy's current life? Because cause this is, like me, this is your life. This isn't just something that you do as a job, nine to five, go home. No. You speak all over the nation. You do this out of your house. You do it pro bono, right? I mean, you're constantly you're on organizations, boards. You do this everywhere, How did you find such passion for this work? So I think for me, my journey started probably when I was three years old. Um, I grew up feeling super, super scared, super small, really overwhelmed, living in this really big, messy, sloppy world. And I remember from as long as I truly have any form of memory, being really depressed and really scared and not feeling good enough and just feeling inadequate in every possible capacity of being. So for me, that was a huge catalyst for it. But the largest catalyst was my mom ended up getting diagnosed with a severe anxiety disorder when I was younger. I lost her for about three years as she was navigating that, trying to figure out what was going on, getting tested, going down to UCLA, figuring out what was up with her. And all the while, my dad doing the best he could, being very proactive in terms of providing for the family. However, emotionally being distant, being hard to read, feeling cold, and not feeling loved the way I needed to feel loved. And feeling scared because my mom was sick. So I internalized all of that. I internalized my dad's moods and my dad's depression as something must be wrong with me. I internalized my mom's illness as something must be wrong with me. I didn't bring friends over because if it was too loud, my mom would get too upset and have a problem. I just lived really small and lived really scared. When I was about 10 years old, my mom started going to a therapist, and that was a huge turning point for her in her life, and it actually gave me my mom back. So for the first time, many years later, I actually had my mom back in my life, so that felt incredibly exciting for me. Seeing the work that the therapist was doing with my mom inspired me to want to be a therapist. So when I was 10 years old, I decided that's what I want to do. The same therapist, when I was around probably 14 or 15, said that is the stupidest thing you could ever do. Why would you want to be a therapist? You won't make any money. That's ridiculous. Horrible job choice. Don't do it. So based on my impressionable self, I took that and thought, oh, gosh, I guess I shouldn't be a therapist. So for a while, pursued some other paths, became a teacher, um, taught for a while, did that actually for about three or four years, and then um, thrown in there, also had a practice marriage, got out of that, spent some time traveling, kind of finding myself, and went back to school, got my master's in counseling, and kind of never looked back since. So that was a big part of what got me into being a therapist. Obviously, that felt pretty traumatic as a kid not feeling emotionally safe or physically safe throughout my life, and then having a couple other traumas thrown in along the way that um, kind of catalyzed this journey. And I think that's partially also why I've found myself knee-deep in dealing with trauma this whole time, too. Which makes you unique because, as we know, and many of you listeners don't know this, 
Uh, therapists don't like to do drama work in general. It's very hard. It's uh, there's days I come home, and Ify and I talk about this often, and you hear the most horrific tragic stories and you watch these people break down practically in your arms and you're there to hold that space for them and it's it's a skill that you have to learn and a gift that I think you're given to be able to be a trauma therapist so if you could just talk about like why trauma rather than just like like a behavior therapist or or marriage and family or you know what I mean like that's your you are known as like the trauma guru that's your thing I like to be called the trauma rock star. The trauma Matt. rock star, right. Yeah, Guru is a little, yeah. here's my Guru's question a little for too you much. with that. Okay. With trauma, if you've said, Matt, it's hard to be a trauma therapist. And I know watching you that it's tough. Like you come home with that burden because you hear things that no one wants to hear. And you have to, you want to, you want to help people. Mm-hmm. And you were Amy, you were saying that, you know, financially, being a therapist is not ideal. <laughs> it's not amazing. So you have to love what you're doing. You have to really believe in what's going on. So with trauma, is that because of you've been through trauma always? Or is that not necessarily a prerequisite to being a trauma therapist that you've been through it and you're like, I really want to help those that are going to go through this now? Um, I have a maybe a unique philosophy I think every single one of us has been through trauma in some capacity. So obviously I believe that, first off, I, I'm going to go on a little bit of a soapbox here. I think that societally we only reserve the use of the word trauma for people who have been raped, beaten, molested, first responders, been to war, and that couldn't be farthest from the truth. I look at myself, for instance, I was raped when I was 19 years old by one of my best friends. And that is not my worst trauma. My worst trauma is, again, childhood stuff, not feeling good enough. So for me to conceptualize and to actually understand that every single one of us has trauma, that's what has gotten me into this, I think, and also kept my passion alive to help kind of take away that myth, take away that stigma of, oh, no, no, my trauma's not as bad as theirs. It doesn't count. Only this happened. When in reality, every single one of us, the three of us sitting in this room have trauma at varying levels. And so for me, trauma, first off, every single client I see has trauma, regardless of whether they know that, whether they identify with that or not. So that's the first thing I am always trying to help them understand that you have trauma. So let's figure out because you have this trauma, what's been the impact and how do we get you back your life? So knowing that, I think what's kept me in the game as long as I have, because the average career expectancy for a trauma therapist is 18 months. And for me, yeah, which is crazy, right? So for me, what's kept me in it is hope. Um, I tell all of my clients, I will hold the hope for you until you're ready to take it back yourself. And I strongly 100% believe in the recovery rate of trauma because I see it every single day. I've had beautiful stories of resiliency and strength and courage and healing. And that's what keeps me going. I also, I don't know what's wrong with me. It's all, if you checked my playlists and musically, it would make sense. I listen to dark, heavy music and I think heavy, dark thoughts a lot. Um, I think the darker the trauma, the heavier the content, the deeper the swamp, the more I love it. Um, That's why we get along so well. I know, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I have a joke. I have a playlist called, um, (laughs) well, I'll leave the title off. 
that's supposedly uppers and downers, and really there's not really any uppers on it. <laughs> it's all straight downers. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of dark. I, I kind of live in the world of darkness sometimes, maybe too much. But I think that's why I love. I think that's why I love doing the trauma work because there's something really satisfying holding someone's hand while they're knee deep in the quagmire of swamp, thinking there's no way to the other side, helping them get to the other side, and I mean, knowing that there's hope. Yeah. If there's people out there listening who are thinking, you know, well, maybe I didn't think I had trauma, but now everybody has trauma. So how do I deal with that? What advice would you give them? Do you have anything that you feel is, has been helpful for you, like in managing kind of the stories we tell ourselves about the trauma, the life that we've lived and how to deal with that? I think the biggest thing is stepping into your story and honoring whatever that is to you, not comparing it. I think as humans, we spend most of our life comparing, comparing, um, you know, I'm different, I'm exempt, I'm unique, mine's not as bad as theirs, mine's worse than theirs, when in reality, having a sense of common humanity, understanding that every single one of us are fighting our own battle that most of the time no one else knows about. So just truly stepping into your story and whatever that means and honoring it and having the courage to express that in some way that gives you meaning. Because at the end of the day, trauma robs us of our way of being in the world and robs us of our meaning. And so the best form of healing with trauma is finding some way to incorporate meaning from it. Speak more about trauma robbing us of our way of being in the world, because I love this concept. Um, This concept for me started when I was flying somewhere to do a training to facilitate a cognitive processing therapy training. And I was sitting next to this super sweet, older Korean man. And in broken English, he asked me what I did for a living. And I naturally, because of my big (laughs) kind of crazy energy, got really excited and was using my hands and and explaining what I did. I'm a trauma therapist and this, that, and the other. And he started to get kind of tearful and emotional. He's like, wow, that's so interesting because we've never had a word in the Korean language that translates to trauma. Our closest word translates to soul robbery. And I still get goosebumps today. Mm When I think about that, because if you think of a traumatic event, regardless of the magnitude, regardless of the intensity, regardless of how you measure it on this subjective yardstick, trauma at the end of the day is a soul robbery. It robs our way of being in the world differently than how we were prior to the event. And so naturally the lens in which we see the world, ourself and others changes dramatically. And in, as a result of that lens shift, what happens is we lose meaning We lose meaning what it means to be human. We lose meaning what it means to be a partner. We lose meaning as to, we lose meaning in all regards of the word. And so one of the most powerful things is re-changing that narrative so that we step into our power and that we step back into what it, what meaning we can bring from the traumatic event to assimilate it back into our world. So that to me is essentially... Kind of my I think my one concept. Thing I was going to tell you what you were saying was huge for me. Is I've I've noticed that there's so many people that do compare trauma. Yeah. Like with me, I've had so many people that will be telling me something or they're having something hard, and then they'll say, "I mean, it's nothing. You lost your daughter. This is nothing." <laughs> right. And at least you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> or even for me, like honestly, I remember thinking. Um, it could be worse. You at least have how many kids that are still alive? Yes. But I'm just saying there's always there's always a comparison. There's always, oh, mine's not as hard as hers, or mine's worse than yours, or mine's this. And it's like, does it really matter? 
No. And that's what I said. That's something I bring up in group all the time. Most of my therapy is done in group. I'm the clinical director at Deer Hollow and get the honor of working with Matt there. And I, we see that so often in group where people think they're exempt. People think they're different. And I regularly, probably once a week at least, say, okay, please raise your hand if you're sitting in this room and you're suffering, suffering in any capacity. And naturally, every single hand goes up. And with that, what I try to illustrate is it doesn't matter what your experience is. It doesn't matter what your history is. What matters is that you're a human, you're suffering, and you're in pain. And that's the part that we try to tend to is that emotional suffering rather than some comparison, some competition of, oh, yours isn't as bad as mine. Oh, mine's not as bad as yours. Because at the end of the day, none of that matters. What matters is the level of suffering. And if you've endured trauma, you've endured some form of emotional wound, which means there's some form of suffering. And if there's some form of suffering, chances are, because none of us have a roadmap on how to handle that, we're living a life that isn't as effective or healthy as it could be. Well, and if you start to compare, then I feel like it takes the empathy out of it. Oh, it takes the empathy. well, mine's worse than yours, so I don't feel bad for you. It takes the empathy. It takes the self-compassion out. It takes all of the ingredients that are absolutely integral to healing trauma out of the equation. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, even I remember when, after Bridie passed, I remember having a friend of ours at our house, and he actually was talking. I didn't know at the time what it was, but he was talking about EMDR. And he said, I have had PTSD since I had this car accident. And I was like, PTSD in a car accident? <laughs> in my mind, PTSD was you went to war. Right. Or you were like a firefighter. You had, it had to be so traumatic. That's the only way you had PTSD. Mm-hmm. PTSD. Mm-hmm. I had no idea at the time that I had PTSD, that I wasn't sleeping, mm-hmm. that I had all these things going on because of that. Because to me, like I said, it didn't connect. And he talked about a little bit about EMDR and how it was helping him through some of the things he'd been through. Have you had, I know that this is something that you engage in and that you, I don't even know the right word, but anyways, my point is that I feel like sometimes we think, oh, well, that's not me. And the reality is it's kind of all of us. It is all of us. And I, to illustrate that, I was hanging out with an acquaintance a number of years ago, probably five or six years ago. And she says to me, wow, so you do trauma work. It's really interesting. Notice I said the word acquaintance. You'll understand why she's just an acquaintance after the story. (laughs) Um, So she was like, wow, you do trauma work. That's so interesting to me. So what do you think about this new diagnosis of PTSD? It's so interesting that they, they, whoever they are, created this diagnosis for individuals who've been to just war. Isn't that interesting? And so I had my Bethany moment and wanted to punch her in the face and say, <laughs> yes. yes, I have those moments often and said, well, actually, have you thought about some of the subtle traumas that we've all endured that often get brushed under the carpet because they're not as significant, not as glamorous, not as cool, if you will, as those who have gone to war, those who, you know, respond to save lives daily who are at war every day, you know, on, on our local streets. And those are all significant, don't get me wrong, and often overlooked. However, every one of us have endured some form of a battle that could have potentially caused the diagnosis of PTSD to exist. So again, regardless of whether someone has a diagnosis of PTSD or not, every single one of us have endured some form of trauma that has impacted our life negatively. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting that this whole concept of, oh, yeah, only first responders, oh, yeah, only those in the military have gotten you know, get PTSD. That's one of the greatest myths I think of trauma. 
That was actually one of the questions we got on Facebook was can someone have PTSD without having like one singular big traumatic event, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, individuals can obviously get PTSD or be diagnosed with some form of traumatic disorder by simply living life and having kind of a culmination of effects. I, I use this analogy all the time when I'm teaching people how to kind of conceptualize what PTSD or trauma is in general. It's kind of a corny analogy, but it kind of makes sense. If you think of a kitchen sponge, a brand new kitchen sponge, each of us have come into this world essentially with a brand new kitchen sponge, i.e. our psyche, our spirit, our emotional well-being or well, whatever it is. So you bring this kitchen sponge home. You open it up. You open the wrapper. It's all crispy. You feel the sponge. It's kind of weird and humid, which always freaks me out a little bit. But you take this brand new sponge out, and it's great. It's effective. It works so well. And over time, what happens to the sponge if you're not taking care of it? It gets nasty. It gets nasty. Moldy. Moldy. It stinks, (laughs) right? you got food particles that you have to flick out of it. It's all gross and stinky and disgusting. And let's suppose you take this gross, disgusting, untended to sponge and you keep pouring water over it what's going to happen if you keep pouring water over it matt it's going to remain as stinky as it once was (laughs) yes and even more so what's going to happen with the water it can only absorb for so long before what happens it falls apart it falls apart it gets saturated so if you think of each of us coming into this world none of us have been given a roadmap like i alluded to earlier none of us have been given the skills to understand what to do to wring out our emotional sponge that being said what, what causes that sponge to overfill? Us not taking care of it. The same thing that happens to us with our life experiences and our emotional bank, if you will. If we're not tending to it, if we're not nurturing it, if we're not ten, care, you know, caring for it, it's going to get saturated. And so, yes, trauma can have a very cumulative effect. You know, I've worked with people and they're like, well, why now? This wasn't that big of a deal, but it threw me over. It's that accumulation of drip by drip by drip that overfills our sponge that we're not taking care of. So yes, trauma can definitely come from multiple life experiences that just end up saturating us emotionally. What are the most effective ways that you have found to tend to the sponge, if you will? I don't know why that made me laugh. Um, The the most... (laughs) Because you're like, throw the sponge away. I was going to say, throw the sponge away and start over. Oh, real life. Yeah, so real life, because most of us try to throw the sponge away and that doesn't work. The most effective way to wring out the sponge um, to me is obviously going to get some form of therapy. Not just any therapy, but working with a therapist who will have the courage to challenge you on the areas that you need to be challenged. Have the courage to, well, the hope to sit with you and hold the space while you're suffering and hold, hold that compassionately and safely. And most importantly, to meet with someone who is definitely trained, understanding, and certified in some of the more core evidence-based treatment modalities. Um, well, let's talk about a couple of those. Hey, yeah. Good let's... segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got a lot of questions on EMDR, right? Tons And EMDR is something that Amy and I are both trained in and use consistently. And the rest of the world is just fascinated by, and it's just four letters, and I don't know what what it means half the time. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. (whistles) Woo! Ain't that a mouthful? So essentially, what, something like... 
30-something, 40, I don't know, 30-ish years ago. The founder of EMDR, Francine Shapiro, was walking through Central Park, as she, and she's a registered nurse, and she was dealing with some of her own emotional stuff. And as she was walking through Central Park, she found herself using her eyes to kind of fixate on different points of focus, eyes going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as she was walking and processing her emotional material. In that, what she realizes after the walk and by using this kind of random, spontaneous kind of intuitive body eye movement, she realized that her emotions were a lot different. She had some distance from the raw material that initially caused her to have such an emotional activation. And so she started to research this at length. So years later, what has been proven is that EMDR is probably one of the most evidence-based, generalizable, effective treatment modalities to treat trauma. And the premise of EMDR is it uses bilateral stimulation. What that is is a fancy three-letter phrase of saying bilaterally stimulating different parts of your body, most effectively your eyes, meaning moving your eyes back and forth. So therapists can do EMDR either using their hands, following, having the client follow their fingers as they bring up an emotional memory, or they can use paddles, which they hold in each hand, and each hand essentially vibrates with the paddle going back and forth, back and forth. You can use tapping, you can use a light bar. There are different ways in order to allow the body to track bilaterally. But what bilateral stimulation essentially does is it takes any of the closed trauma networks that are stored in our brain and allows them to open. It gives us access to them. How it gives it access is by identifying a target image from one of the most traumatic memories. So by pairing the target image with a belief, which we all have, we create these negative cognitions and stories about these horrible things that have happened to us you know, such as I'm not good enough. If I would have fought harder, that wouldn't have happened. I'm a failure. These, you know, kind of horrible stories we tell ourselves about ourselves or others. So what EMDR does is it pairs an image with this negative belief. And then the clinician uses bilateral stimulation, again, most commonly using the eyes to help access that closed trauma network to open it. And what studies show, this is the part that EMDR is a little, it's a little bit hard to justify, and there's still not a lot of justification out there. What studies believe is that EMDR on some level translates to a similar process that happens when we're in deep REM sleep that allows our brain to reprocess material in a capacity that gives us distance from whatever the emotional activation is. So essentially EMDR is helping give distance from the traumatic memory. I wish there was an amazing treatment modality that could be a magic eraser to get rid of the trauma itself. There is no such a thing, but EMDR does a brilliant job of giving an individual distance from the painful memory so that they can actually see it for what it is and have it not take power over their life. I was going to say, just, you know, listening and knowing a little bit about EMDR, just the fact, like you said, just removing yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. I know just from my experience, being able to remove yourself even just a little bit, even having that little bit of a break in your brain, in your thought process, away from that trauma is huge. Oh, that break is what I call the magic quarter second, right? It gives us time to actually evaluate what's happening because when we're in fight, flight, or freeze, we're so activated and we're so emotionally charged that we're driven by emotion. Mm -hmm. And that emotion feels like a tsunami that just sweeps us away. And so just 
getting some distance is such a beautiful reprieve. Yeah, because you're exhausted. Oh, completely. So having a little bit of distance, you feel like, okay, you can you can pull it together just for a little bit, function in, for the next wave to come. Exactly, yep. And sometimes that's all we need. We need just a little break between those waves to be able to live our normal life, to take care mm-hmm. of our other kids, to take care of ourselves, business, ourselves, yep. whatever we need, whatever's on our plate at the time. Okay. Can I put you on the spot? Yes. This whole thing has put me on the spot. So, <laughs> so okay. why stop now, Matt? I'm curious if you think that we could do an EMDR, group EMDR mini exercise right now with us here and then people listening can also do it as they hear it and to see for themselves how EMDR works, maybe with butterfly tapping or something like that. I don't know if you think that would work or not, but... It would be hard because in group you need to be drawing. Okay. And you guys don't have drawing tools in front of you. Okay. Is there an exercise that might not be EMDR that we can do now that you feel like would be beneficial so people at home can just kind of experience the magic that is Amy? Maybe a breathing technique or something that you so, feel is valuable. Just so you know, we may never get Amy back on. You will never get me back on. <laughs> and I'm scratching my clavicle out of anxiety. <laughs> So, um, caveat, this is when Amy thrives under pressure and I know it because I watch her do it every single day and here we go. All right. So what, (laughs) all right. So if you are listening and actually participating in this, we'll do it too. How's that? Oh, that makes it so much better, Matt. Thank you so much. That's great. All right, so what I'm going to have you guys do is I'm not going to have anybody reprocess any traumatic material because, thank God, none of you have my phone numbers, so I won't be on speed dial when shit gets real. (laughs) That's my one profanity I was allowed, so I just used that up. So what I want you guys to do is I want you to think about making a butterfly with your hands. So hook your two thumbs together with your the rest of your fingers vertically placed as much as possible. So, you know, kind of looks like a butterfly, right? So thumbs are hooked, fingers are as vertical as possible. You're going to place your hands on your upper chest, ideally in a placement where your fingers are touching your clavicle. And as you're doing this, you're going to just begin tapping slowly, alternating with hands. So just, you can, whichever hand feels most comfortable to start with, but essentially tapping with your right, tapping with your left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. And as you do this, you can begin thinking of a place or a setting or a song or somebody that helps you feel calm. And as you do this, focus on your breath and begin thinking of this calm place in as much rich detail as you possibly can. Maybe it's the deck on your porch as you drink tea in the morning. Maybe it's sitting on a beach that's quiet. Maybe it's you cuddling your child as they laugh, whatever it might be. Think of just tapping as you start installing this calm place. As you do this, just continue breathing. So what you guys are doing right now is called installing a calm place. And that's through the use of the EMDR butterfly hug. And you can do this at any point when you find yourself being emotionally activated. How you would end this is when you start to feel a little bit calmer. You would stop tapping, unlock your thumbs, place your hands on your thighs, take a deep breath in. Exhale it out as deeply as you possibly can. And just notice what comes up for you. That, again, is a self-administered EMDR technique of the butterfly hug to install this calm place. 
Another way to use that is you can tap on your thighs, alternating tapping on your thighs, thinking of something you're grateful for. That helps de-escalate an activated limbic system. So those are two kind of quick EMDR self-administered techniques that one could do. Okay, that Beautiful. was awesome. Like, weirdly enough, I just did it with her because I'm like, I'll give it a shot. And it straight up took me to St. Thomas. <laughs> ah, see, there you go. Is it? It was funny because I don't think, if you asked me what's the most calming thing, I don't know if that would have been the first thing that right. came to mind. But as soon as we were doing that, that's it was on the deck when we were in St. Thomas Mount. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Anyways, that was really cool. Is if nothing else to like a calming thing. That was awesome. Yeah. Obviously, the last thing I want to do is get you guys reprocessing material and fillet you open and go, good (laughs) luck, have fun, and not have a resource to help you. That's good. Yeah. Okay. One thing thing I will say. Go for it. I want to hear it. We got, well, just questions um, on Facebook. Yeah. A lot of people are asking about their kids. Ah, yeah, kids. Which is like your expertise, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, so definitely, so I'm not going to lie, kids are not my expertise at all. Most of the time, I would say 93, mm, let's up that. I'd say 96.7% of the time, I feel like the world's worst mother. So you definitely do not want to take kid advice from me. But here's my thing. 100% disagree with that. Yeah, I, I disagree because... She made me better, which made me a better mom, which made my kids better. It's all just this like downward spiral. Well, or maybe upward spiral. Upward spiral. I think I said that wrong. <laughs> That's right. um, well, no, it's downward because if, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know the right word. It's a word. directional spiral that Thank helps you, you become a yes. better human being. But I will say. Which helps you be a better parent. I get that. Yeah. Yes. And I felt like for me going to therapy... And working on me, it opened up my kids' eyes to therapy, and it made my son more vulnerable. Oh, see, I have stuff to talk about this. Okay. Cause, <laughs> but honestly, like, it did it. I felt like he was more open, so when he was really struggling and I asked him to go to therapy, he was open to it. So, yeah, I would definitely, like, echo what Bethany is saying regarding that. I think as parents, we have this tendency to make our child the identified patient. That's a fancy clinical word of saying, well, something must be wrong with my kid. They're struggling, so let's send them to therapy. Mm -hmm. And we make ourselves exempt. So to me, one of the best things that we can do as parents, first off, is to be human, be vulnerable with our kids, and be honest when we're struggling. And sometimes that might mean that we have to go into our own therapy. And to me, if your child's in therapy, we as parents should also be in therapy. Because if, to me, our number one, our number one goal of being, you know, good, healthy leaders, which is essentially what a parent is doing, is leading by example. So if we're not willing to do the work ourselves, how can we expect our child to? And I don't think that that's a fair expectation. So I think one of the best things we can do is be always continually working on ourselves to improve ourselves, to lead by example, to help them realize that being human sometimes means we have to ask for help, and that might mean through therapy. So I definitely feel strongly about that. Because again, I get a lot of like, well, what can I do for my kids? What can I do for my kids? And I kind of want to say, I don't care about your kids. What are you doing for yourself? Because if you're not working on yourself, it's kind of hypocritical for you to ask your kids to do anything different. So I definitely feel strongly about that. I totally agree. If you can't figure out things for yourself, if you can't love yourself, if you can't constantly be wanting to make yourself better, 
then what? Why would they? Right. They're watching our example probably more than anything. I get people all because I a lot of the referrals that I get are for kids because I actually worked with kids for Thank many God many years. Does. Right. I get a ton of referrals for kids, and he's amazing. I don't know about that, <laughs> but I worked with kids oh, for years. Um, and they're teasing me. This is this is ruthless. Why did I do this? Put myself in a room with you two? I don't even know. He was just trying to get me back to put her on the spot. Completely. Yeah, it's all right. I know you'll get me back later. I'm waiting for it. Um, anyway, so I worked with kids for a number of years. I wasn't a therapist, but I worked in a treatment center with kids for eight years. And um, kind of grew this affinity for working with children. And so I get referrals for kids now quite often. And nine times out of ten, when I'm working with these kids... I end up actually working with the parents, and I never see the kids again, and then guess what happens? Kids get better. It happens all the time. So if you're struggling with your kids, maybe some self-care is where it's at, right? Maybe you need to do a little butterfly tapping on your own, right? Yep. yep. Beautiful. Pretty awesome. So are there any more questions that we feel like we want to answer off of Facebook? I didn't see, I mean, we had a lot on there. A lot of kid things. A lot of which, kid stuff. I think we covered well, a ton And just today. to circle back for those of you who I am grateful did post questions and things you'd like to have more information on, a lot of them were really amazing, such as how do you help your child handle bullying? How do you help teach your children compassion? So I think first off, I want to say I know Matt and Bethany are going to do an amazing job circling back and addressing those probably in separate podcasts. And again, the biggest theme is how do we address it first off with ourselves? If our kids are getting bullied, how do we teach them to have boundaries? The best way is how do we have boundaries ourselves? How do we teach ourselves? How do we teach our kids compassion? How do we have compassion ourselves? So I know Matt and Bethany will be circling back on some of those kid kids slash adult concepts that have enough opportunity for a full podcast. For sure. Definitely. As we wrap up, what are some takeaways that we have today that you guys feel like we need to reemphasize as we kind of finish up? Just some take-homes for everybody that's listening. Um, My biggest thing is I felt like there was a stigma with therapy my whole entire life. Um, I went through different traumas as a teenager and growing up and was never in therapy. And I, I understand. It was a different time and different thoughts, and that's fine. But it has literally saved my life, saved my marriage, saved my children. It has been amazing in ways I can't even explain to people. So if there's anything or anyone that feels like they need something, it doesn't have to be this lifelong process. I don't see Amy every week anymore or every, you know, it's, you work through things and then it's just when I need her, I text her and get a, have a, conference or whatever we call it, a session. <laughs> a friend-to-piss session. Um, I think my largest takeaway is I feel very strongly that every one of us has trauma and most of us minimize that. So the biggest thing for me is stepping into our story and owning that because that's how you get to change the ending. And as we step into our story and we own it, find strength, people. That's right. Oh, yeah. Because yes, next week we got some fun stuff we coming up. We have a lot of fun stuff coming up. I've got... Tell me about that. Yes. Would you like to hear about it? <laughs> I would it? like to. Our, our mutual friend, Mike. Oh, Sexy Mike? Sexy Mike. <laughs> yes. Doc. Is he, he's not a doc. No. No, Sexy he, Mike's not a doctor. But he is a clinical sexologist. That's yes. what it says. Mm-hmm. 
So that's going to be a good that's one. That's why he's Sexy Mike, for those of you wondering. Yeah, sexy Mike. It's going to be a good one. I'm just going to say you're welcome ahead of time to all you listeners out there. It's going to be a great one. Um, we got a police officer talking about his trauma. We've got, hopefully, I'm crossing my fingers for this one, we're going to get a fitness guru on the podcast. This guy, some of you may know who I'm talking Aren't about. Aren't you guys fitness gurus? Not quite. Uh, not like this guy. This guy's straight up fitness guru, um, and we're excited about him. Um, we are actually, for the sex therapy, relationships, intimacy podcasting, Bethany and I are going to bring our spouses to that one. That's going to be a good one. So we're going to see how that goes down. So we'll have Brindy, my wife, and Kevin, Bethany's husband, in here with us. It's going to be a great time. Is there anything you guys want to plug before we finish up? Um, actually, the only thing I would, I, the, I guess the biggest thing is for me, Always, we do brighten a day. So if you're ever having a rough day, you're feeling down, things are rough, go out and brighten a day because that's what we do. That's what we're about. We didn't talk about this last week, and I wish we would have, but you can donate to Brighten a Day. If you go on the Brighten a Day website, brightenaday.org, and there's a donate button on there. Brighten a Day needs money constantly to be able to help these families out. It is not a free service, and it's coming out of the pockets of a lot of people who are actually hurting. So if you guys feel passionate about the podcast stuff you heard last week in Bethany's story, please go to brightonday.org and click that donate button. That would be I awesome. I would say one thing too is if if there's ever um, a podcast that you guys find interesting or you guys find are passionate about, let us know. So that way we can, we want to talk about things that are helpful to other people. So give us some ideas. Awesome. Amy, got anything for us? Last Amy? thing is go to therapy. It's not 100%. a weakness. It's how you find your strength. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Thank you. Thank you. You're the You're best. The best. <laughs> We're the best. Yes. Go team. Well, there it is. Episode two of Finding Strength. I hope you enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun making it. Um, great conversation. Great people. A lot of really cool information, I think, came out of that. And I'm really hoping that uh, we can continue to keep this street going. Please, if you can... Go find us on Facebook. That's right. We have our own Facebook page. Finding Strength Podcast. Just look that up and you'll find it on Facebook. Give us a like as well. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And go and give us a rating. Five stars if you really liked it. And if you didn't really like it, don't leave us a rating. I'm just kidding. Five stars is super helpful. Write a nice little description about why you liked it. Um, and reach out to me if you want, you know, I'm on Facebook, Matt Quackenbush, comma, MSW, like me, follow me. Bethany's on there too. I have an Instagram. So does Bethany. Anyways, follow us wherever you can reach out to us. We would love to help in any way we can. And most importantly, brighten a day. I know we plugged it at the end of the episode, but I'm going to plug it again. Go to their website, hit it up and donate, hit that donate button, a little clickety click. Drop 10 bucks, 15, 20, 100, 1,000, whatever you can do. Because this organization is something that we are really passionate about. And I know the Tennies, it means the world to them as we support them in their efforts to change the world, really, and to help these families that are going through some of the most difficult struggles you could ever imagine. So please check them out. Do a kind act in Brighty's name. Order some Brighton a Day cards, whatever you got to do. Anyways, thanks for listening, guys. What a great episode, and we'll see you next time.